few observations about what we're doing now. We've moved from a number of fairly broad modes of attentiveness to breathing to a much more one-pointed kind of attentiveness. And I'd like to just say a few words about that. Some of it is just reviewing what we went over last week and uh, some the beginnings of some obstacles that typically come up for people, and then I'd like to know what your experience is. What I'm suggesting is that independent of where your, let's say, established place of attention is, that uh, to give this a chance that you come to the nose. I know that some of you have perhaps been for down at the abdomen for 10 years, and you can go back to it. And it's not saying that this is superior to being here or being at the heart or moving with the whole breath. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that by and large, in general, again, there are always individual exceptions, uh, if, it, if it's a, an absorption practice or a samadhi practice, and my own experience dramatically bears this out, that work over here will take you into absorption uh, more easily, more gracefully, more quickly. What it is is that, in a sense, the smaller the region that you're attending to, the more concentrated you can get. And so when we're just at the nostrils, and if you recall, there were two aspects of the practice now. One is that point of contact or touch, discerning it. Because as you follow the breath in this region, you can feel more or less, as from breath to breath, whether it's most apparent to you, either at the upper lip or the some place on the nose tip itself, that is the inside front of the nostrils, wherever you're feeling it. So step number one is to is the establish that point of contact or touch. And it may take some watching until you see that this is the best place for you two, and then the second step is fixing. That is, once you've, let's say, established where you feel the sensations are by and large most alive, then it's a matter of fixing your attention there, stationing your attention there. And just being there as the breath comes in and out, we're not following the breath now. And in the Vasudhimaga, uh, which is an ancient commentary on all this, they use the, the simile of the saw. That is, let's say you're sawing a piece of wood. You're at one point on the wood, and even though the saw goes forward and back, just like the breath goes in in the previous kinds of contemplations or kinds of awarenesses, now you're not following the breath. You're not following where it goes, but you're staying at the the that point on its on its course where you've established yourself. So that let's say if you're sawing wood. You might even make a mark. Let's say a carpenter might make a mark. And then the saw is on that one point. The saw is moving, but the point is stationary. Or another example that's used is uh, when you, a, a nurse rocking a cradle. With it, at first, the child is not asleep and, 
has to be watched very carefully as it swings because it's going to jump out or fall out. At a certain point, the child becomes very, very, falls asleep in the cradle. And then the, the person attending simply doesn't have to follow the cradle in all those swings. It's just, just a, a, a sense of the cradle as it comes in view. You don't have to go forward and backward with it. Now, for some of you, this may be a very different way of paying attention. I don't know. I, I know many of you have been working at the nose, but perhaps not in quite this way. So that we locate where the sens- sensations are most alive at the nostrils, and then we, there's a close placement of attention there. We, as we say now, hang out there. You're just there. And the breath comes and goes, and you know that, and you can feel it coming in and going out. But essentially, you're, it's an exercise in discernment of that point of contact where the breath meets the skin, touches it, as it goes in and goes out. Okay? Is everyone clear on that? Now, this kind of practice uh, can uh, incline the breath to become very, very fine, very delicate. So that's one advantage of it. Moreover, let's say if you're at the abdomen or you're at the chest or you're going with the whole breath, there are many more possibilities for distraction because it's a much a larger range, many, many, much more variety of sensations in that region. And the sensations themselves are more coarse. It can become extremely fine, and that's what I'd like to talk about now, right up here at the nose. Okay. And so, essentially, in the fourth step, and again, we use the other uh, uh, forms of practice that we've been doing all along uh, as well. We've, it's not that we're done with them by any means. But let's say when you... Typically, you might start off, as we did tonight, by working in one of the more broad forms of attentiveness, tracking, or the full body, or sweeping. And then as the mind calms down a bit, as the breath calms down a bit, uh, coming to this uh, more limited kind of an object, a more a smaller, more precise kind of object. Um, sometimes the advantage of starting big first is a little bit like, and this has been coming out in some of the interviews that I've been having with a few of you, uh, let's say uh, a child is very rebellious and doesn't want to, let's say, follow certain schedules. So you let the child run around, you know, okay, go out in the field and roam around and have a good time. And then after that energy is kind of used a bit, then only then do you say, okay, now it just go right to the nose. So that sometimes the mind will enjoy having this bigger area to play with, so that when it comes to this more one-pointed kind of attentiveness, it doesn't fight it. Now, one of the dangers with a very smaller area, it has advantages, which I've mentioned. Because as the breath becomes very, very fine, and then a large part of our practice in step four is learning how to concentrate on fineness. And then some problems come up as the breath becomes finer and finer. So that, uh, the fact that the breath becomes more fine is actually an advantage because as we learn how to stick with a much more fine breathing, everything becomes more fine. The body does, the mind does. And so it's really an advantage. Okay. Um,
Let me sketch out a few problems that have happened to yogis over the centuries. Uh, if any of them happened to you, I'd like to hear about it. One is that uh, the breath can become... Oh, before I get to that, uh, one problem when you're working with a, a smaller area, a more restricted space and following the breath, is that some people get too tight around that. It's sort of uh, like a, uh, a little bit too vi- almost violent with the breath. It's not a, we're not trying to make a cage for the breath. The, the attentiveness is still open. It's soft. It's just that we're, it's a much more precise kind of noticing. We're stationing ourselves right where we know that the breath is going to touch. And we feel it. And when there's a pause, we still stay there. See, our attentiveness is still stationary. And it takes a while to establish your attentiveness like that. It's not going to come just because you hear me say it. But you will learn, if you do it, how to stay right there. And the breath moves, but you don't. Okay, so make sure that you don't uh, have an attitude of forcing and restrictiveness, which can be sometimes a little bit more likely to occur when it's such a small object. Um, Some of the uh, typical things to look for, and perhaps you haven't experienced it yet, but it's good to know about it because when it comes, or if it comes, it's not that it has to come, but if it does come, uh, you'll be prepared. Uh, A typical one is that uh, the breath at a certain point will be experienced as too fine to be discerned. It just gets very, very fine, and then your conclusion is that you're not breathing. Okay, And there's one step after that. If you're not breathing, the next step is death, right? It's, it's so, I, I'm not breathing. And when we think of not breathing, we think of death. And I had a, there's a person I had an interesting interview with a, a while ago uh, who had been doing a practice like this and never came to interviews, never shared what he was doing. And this was over a period of, I would say, two or three years. Essentially what was happening is his practice would get strong right to the point where it became become very, very fine and he would feel as if he were not breathing, and then they would be barely below, you know, kind of aware of it, or sometimes full-blown, a fear of death. And so then he would make the breath more coarse. And then, of course, he was relieved, I'm not going to die. But he, that kept the practice at a certain level of coarseness. So, essentially, for a number of years, he was always seeing to it that he got back to that place, that quality of breath, which was prior to dying what he thought might be dying. And so he was stuck, really stuck there. Okay. So, so that let's say you come and you can't see the breath. It's so fine. Uh, one very good thing to do is nothing. You know, just if you understand that you're not going to die, I'm telling you that. I don't know if you trust me. You won't die. No yogis have ever died from this, to my knowledge. Okay. Um, now, sometimes, uh, especially at the beginning or the first time it happens, and that's why I'm saying it, if it hasn't, it, it might happen. It can happen if the breath becomes fine too quickly. That is, uh, you're going along at a certain quality, the breath is at a certain quality, and then sometimes uh, there's not enough of a transition. Suddenly you drop down to a certain kind of fineness. And the first time it happens, or apparently, let's say, in this uh, person I just mentioned, the first few times it happens, um, that it's a kind of shock, and the fear can come from that. 
Okay. Now, if the fear comes, the best thing is to just stay, stay right there, and uh, you might have to to talk to yourself. You might have to say, I know I'm not going to die, I'm fully aware. Uh, dead people don't breathe, that's true, but uh, I'm alive even though I can't feel the breath. Now, often it's not saying that you're not breathing, it's just that you can't discern the breath. But it amounts to the same thing if you're not prepared for it. Okay, now, if you should find that you have a fair amount of fear and it's become a problem, what you can do, of course, is just take a few deep breaths. I mean, in other words, don't make it a problem, don't make it complicated. In the process of doing that, the practice is becoming more coarse. Now, I'm going to use coarse and fine. Please don't take coarse in a derogatory sense. It's just descriptive. The breath becomes a little bit more that way. And as a result, the Anapanasati is like that. But then you pick up again at that level of fineness and you work with it. And perhaps the next time it becomes uh, so fine, you won't be afraid. Or you can not take any deep breaths, but just in the mind, uh, you can get the breath to be slightly more coarse, not by actually breathing more, but by an affirmation. Just, you know, uh, I am breathing. You can say that with just certitude. I am breathing and I know it. And before long, you usually the breath will start to become, it'll still be fine, but it won't be uh, quite as fine as where it was, but it won't be as frightening. Okay. Um, has anyone had experience with that? Has that anything in the, along those lines happened? Please. I'd like to hear about it. Yeah, but it is, but you feel it moving. See, that's a little different. In other words, yeah. there are signs that you're still breathing, aren't there? It almost feels like it comes to rest, but it's heading in that direction. Yeah, yeah. And I don't like the tight feeling, so I, I tend to avoid it. Okay. Um, now, the, t- the tightness is in the body, or is it the breath itself? Are you fo- following it all in the same place? Like, is it all the chest? Where are you following the breath? Following the nostrils, but I'll, I'll notice that there's a type of development. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's a little different. It's related. Uh, there. See, in other words, you don't have the sense that you're not breathing. You know you're breathing. It's just it's it's starting to really become not too easy to detect. And let's say there's a physiological uh, there's some reaction in the body. There, if it's become problematic like any other distraction, you can just go to it, investigate. Just bring awareness to it. Uh, now, at least sometimes, just keep going. I mean, you see, the, the power of the samadhi practice is in developing this unwaveringness. Maybe this is a good time for me to talk about the balance. Remember, I'm talking about a samadhi practice. It's very important that you know what you've set for yourself. If we were doing something else, what I'm saying wouldn't apply. Uh, and just for you to check your own practice. If you're trying to develop a mind that's unwavering, and that's what we're doing, we're trying to develop a mind that's very steady, 
always in life there are things that keep pulling us away from what we're doing. It's not limited to meditation. You want to wash the dishes, there's phone calls and ideas about what you're going to do next, and then you go to what's next and you think about uh, what you just finished. Or So that all day long something is always tugging at us, keeping us from being undivided. That's, so it's not a new thing. That's, that's the way our minds are and the way life is at this point. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, no, I want to make sure that we're talking about the same thing. Okay, now the samadhi practice is developing a, steady, a steadiness that increasingly is relatively independent of conditions. That means when we're trying to do one thing, there are all these other conditions that put, pull us away, invariably. Now the whole point of samadhi is that the steadiness becomes such independent of what's going on. There's a tightness in the chest, there's a loud airplane or no sound, or you're in the jungle or you're in Grand Central Station, or uh, there's happiness or there's depression, or you tell me. That's the whole point, is that the, the oscillations are still there, that the, the, the dog runs after the bone is still going on. There are all these uh, creations coming out of the mind which are saying we're more interesting and more important than the breath, or whatever your object is. And the samadhi practice is, is unwavering. It's a real t- surrender to one object. Looked at another way, it's renouncing all of this other stuff temporarily, letting it go. So that from the point of view of developing samadhi, if you could get into the spirit of that, the whole point is that we go straight ahead for the next 10,000 years, as one teacher told me. Okay. Yeah, it's not just an hour sitting. Uh, but then again, as we know, sometimes things start raging inside of us and what I'm saying just makes no sense. It's not practical. And so there's the suggestion to investigate. Now, try to understand that uh, if you're trying to develop samadhi and you're investigating every five minutes, then to some degree you're really defeating your own purpose. So that uh, I would favor just coming back to the object time and time again. And when you need to, and you're going to have to be the judge, and I imagine there are some sittings when you may have to do it more often. But by and large, uh, limit it. Don't be investigating all over the place, which is a good thing, but it's, it's a different practice. It's just, not, it's just not... So you're taking the strength out of what, this, what we're developing here. So you be the judge. Now what I'm talking about is not so much that some other part of the body or uh, is, is, let's say, like there's a tension in the chest, but that you literally don't feel any breathing happening. And there's fear, if you don't know what that is. Who else has had that experience? I've had that experience, but it's never been outside of the treat setting. It's always been at the same time. Okay, fine, so it wasn't a problem. Okay, now, when you're doing it here, uh, now, in the samadhi practice, and it's very hard to do under the conditions that uh, we have, where, you know, groups, time, sittings, but truthfully, if you can, when you want, when you want to do some samadhi practice, it's much better to not have any, any uh, schedule for the sitting. Just sit down and sit as long as you can. Long is good. Now, it's going to be relative to you. But if you have like uh, 45 minutes, you know, independent of where your breath is or where your attentiveness really is, 
uh, you know, every morning I sit for 45 minutes. That's a good practice, but in samadhi work, it's very helpful if it's a little bit more open-ended. Now, many of us can't do that. We don't have that kind of time, I understand. So that it's still, a, sure, that's one of the values of the retreat, is that you're, those are the conditions to help develop a, a lot of qualities, one of which is uh, concentration. But even here, uh, sometimes set aside an afternoon to do samadhi practice and, and let the sittings be intuitive. Let them go longer than many time, many people get uh, addicted to certain time period. You know, some, I've been sitting 45 minutes for the last seven years. Why? What's, uh, what's important about that? Or if you're in TM, 20 minutes. There's no magic about 20 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour and a half. These are somewhat arbitrary. They're kind of conventions that we use mainly because we're in groups. And we, you know, we have to, we have to, and it can have power too. There's nothing, nothing wrong with it. But for samadhi, it's, it's uh, very, very helpful if you have less disturbance because sometimes it will come, let's say, as you're starting to settle down and then it's time to get up. And often that isn't just at 45 minutes or an hour. And so you might want to uh, begin to learn how to sit for longer periods of time. Now here, there's a very close relationship between your ability to sit for longer periods of time and the fineness of the breath. As the breath becomes more fine, the body becomes more calm and peaceful, and it becomes much easier for the body to sit for long periods of time. As it becomes easier for the body to sit for long periods of time, of course, you're going to sit longer, because you're not going to be feel oppressed by physical pain, and then your samadhi has a better chance of, of developing, so it's a bit circular. So uh, it's just one sense, and so, but you didn't have fear, so that's all right. Did you have did fear ever come? Fear came up. Okay. That man is Andrew. <laughs> okay. Anyone else uh, have uh, anxiety or apprehension that they weren't breathing or that they were afraid? Um. I want to speak to that because I kind of want to back up a little bit right. and check out a couple of things relative to what you said. There were sort of three thematic episodes. The first one, when I switched from the breath and the body, mm-hmm. was very difficult to make a decision. So mm-hmm. much resistance came up. Mm-hmm. When I put my attention here, um, it, it felt like I was closing down and then all this anxiety came up. Mm-hmm. And it, was, it was a real struggle to make that transition. Then that was okay. That went away. The next thing that happened... Can I stay with this one first? Because, you know, one thing at a time. Oh, yeah, no, no, there's no, no time limit. It's just that uh, I, you know, I have limits on how much I can take in. Okay. Uh, when that happens, then, then I would examine the resistance. It's, sure, I understand. Let's say, you're sw- that way, eventually, you'll learn how to um, be, move freely from one practice mode to another, not get attached to any of these techniques. And so you switch from this open... To now, you know, some people it's an improvement. They feel much better. Finally, I just have a small area that I, small little garden to cultivate instead of this whole body. But it doesn't matter. So let's say there was resistance or anxiety. Then it, then it really warrants some some looking, some discernment. Just and then usually that will smooth it out, take some of the energy out of it, and then you can begin the more one-pointed. Okay, keep going. Then what finally happened with that was then it opened up here. It didn't feel close in and mm-hmm. it wasn't scary. Mm-hmm. But I, I really understand what you're saying, and that feels right mm-hmm. about that. Mm-hmm. And the second thing that happened was 
I didn't have trouble putting my attention right there. But then other things would come, and what kept coming was almost like a bellows here. Mm -hmm. it just, the, the breath here just kept fighting to come into the attention. You mean it became very strong? Yeah, mm -hmm. and, and I was able to, most of the time, I was able to keep my attention in the nose, but it was almost like this disembodied other thing, like a bellows. Mm -hmm. Okay, remember, we're not trying to keep anything out. Okay, that's what I'm really asking. Yes, yes. I, I couldn't decide whether to yeah. push or allow or... I, I allow. Allow. You see, because even if you're one-pointed, uh, until you become really one-pointed, uh, all kinds of things are going on simultaneously, sounds and images and thoughts, and other places where the breath is extremely prominent. That's all right, as long as you haven't lost touch with your point of contact. And okay, what's the third thing? And the third thing is the experience you were describing that moment of gone. What's gone? The breath. Oh, yeah. Okay, so you had some of that. And, and again, you said, I sounded very peaceful. Mm -hmm. And there was nothing else. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the, one of the last things you said in your remarks just before I spoke, um, a lot of it, it had felt frustrating because of the time constraints. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I do sit certain periods of time because my life is very scheduled. And I found myself grabbing other bits of time because it felt like it wants mm -hmm. time to extend it. Mm -hmm. I understand. Let me give you some, a frame of some uh, enlarger perspective on practice. This is just my own uh, opinion. It may be wrong, but... Uh, the mode of practice that has come into the United States, a lot of it has been influenced by Japanese Zen, which is scheduled sittings. And then it's very efficient, very effective if you have a lot of people, 125 people sitting and, you know, you schedule it. Sit, walk, sit, walk. Okay, it's one way to do it um, because it's just practical. You can really work with a lot of people. And there's a strong emphasis on the group, which is very strong in Japanese Zen. Uh, if you go to Thailand, they, in many monasteries, and the one that I know best, which is uh, Mahabua's monastery, they just about never do any group sitting. They don't even know what you're talking about. I mean, they know what you're talking about, but the attitude is very, very different. People will come together for instruction, and then everyone has their own, their own thing, their own meditation house. The only time they sit together is when Mahabu gives a Dharma talk, and they'll all sit quietly together for about 20 minutes, and then the talk will begin. Uh, and for them, it's, uh, it's much more individualized, right from the beginning. And so, you take your practice, that you're given what is called a kamatam, kamatana object, in this case the breath, your teacher gives you a, something to practice with, you take it and you work out. And it's not like there are bells going off all the time, or, you know, uh, you, well, time to get, to, it's not like that at all. It's much more free-flowing. You sit and you walk in a much more informal way. It's not limited to Thai Buddhism, a lot of Burmese, uh, practices that way, Sri Lanka, etc. Uh, now we've inherited that, but it, it's another good form. I'm not at all down on it. It's very useful. But don't get locked into it and try to understand that there is some value in sitting long. You know, you, you know it, right? I mean, it takes a while for the mind to settle down, and often it's at exactly that point that we, well, time for breakfast. Okay. And we're happy that we can get out of it. <laughs> you know, like we've done our, we're a good boy and a good girl, we make a little check, 
I remember when I was a graduate student, we had these huge reading lists. And somehow it didn't matter how much I retained, as long as I made a check, you know, I'd finish that book, you know, and then finally go through the whole reading list before the exam. It was a good feeling of security. I don't know exactly what else happened, but at least all the books got checked off. And there is a little of that, too, and I, I see it's familiar to you. Uh, as your practice becomes, you become more self-reliant, it's not like you're doing meditation to please someone else, you know, sort of like, well, I put in my hour, I'm okay, right? I don't know who, who it is you're t- we're talking to, you know, to something in us that is uh, more dedicated than something else that isn't as dedicated. Uh, but at a certain point, it isn't that kind of thing. It's that you want to do it because you want to do it. I mean, it's something you love to do. It's not a question of trying to wriggle out of it or get by with as little as possible. It's quite the opposite. You know, you just want to... Uh, experience the joy of meditation and if you have an opportunity to have an extended period of time you take it just quite naturally nothing special about it okay we gone through okay the other let me again other issues that maybe you can answer or tonight we'll have another sitting and give you a chance to look at it problems come up um, obstacles to absorption what we're doing now is an absorption practice we're becoming absorbed in the breathing. That is, all the disparate energies of the mind are being encouraged to converge around one object, the in-breath and the out-breath. So that energy becomes unified. That's what, that's what we're attempting to do. Now, in the process of watching the in-breath and the out-breath, uh, in general, whether it's very closely at the nostrils or, let's say, tracking or whatever it is, sometimes there are problems where um, there isn't an even attention to the in-breath and the out-breath. That is, sometimes there'll be anxiety. Uh, people will uh, be very alert on the out-breath, and then there'll be anxiety about whether an in-breath is going to come. Has any, has anyone ever had that? Maybe this only happens to Thai and Burmese people. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Uh, that is, the, the out-breath is alert. You're alert on the out-breath, but you lose it on the in-breath you tend to more often than on the out-breath because there's some concern about whether the breath's going to come in, um, the in-breath is going to come in, or it's a, a concern about nourishment often, I found. And do, it does happen to Westerners. I'm just kidding. Uh, and there's a, a, a real concern about when the breath is going to come in. You know it's going to come in, but you're, there's an anxiety in the waiting. It can be very subtle. And if so, it's going to throw off the samadhi practice. Or you're concerned about it coming in, but it doesn't come in quite as comfortably as the breath goes out. Or the other way around. The breath is very comfortable and you just love the in-breath. And the out-breath is not quite as comfortable. You're not sure it's going to happen. You don't know when it's going to happen. There's a little bit of nervousness waiting for it to happen. Sometimes people are afraid of letting go. Systematically have problems with the out-breath. Sometimes people who are, I'm generalizing here, it's more poetic, intuitive, so uh, take it on that level, which is not to say it's not true, has no truth status. Um, Some people who seem to have some apprehension about living fully, uh, there's more complications about the in-breath. Or for some problem about having to do with the structure of the nose or the condition of your health, that the in-breath is more comfortable and, and flows more freely, and so the person will be more attentive on the in-breath and then not so much on the out-breath. So it's one at the expense of the other. Or anxiety. Or one becomes very fine and 
another not, and so you uh, have problems with one or the other. And so it's important to see that. In other words, any inequality, there should be an evenness of attention so that we're exactly with the in-breath and we're exactly with the out-breath. Now, often if there is a problem here, you can come back to the original setting up of the practice. That is, have you really found, has, has the discernment been done properly? Have you really found that place where the breath is touching the nostrils or the upper lip so that you're confident that this is a, a good place to set up uh, attentiveness? Sometimes we're a little casual about that. Or we, we don't hear the instructions fully or we don't put it into, into action. We're a little bit all over the place, even within the small region. Or we neglect really staying there. We, we found where we should be, where to station ourselves, but we're not really doing it. Has anyone noticed any differences between the in-breath and the out-breath for yourself? Okay, we'll have a sitting tonight. You have? What have you seen? It can be you know, any sitting that you remember. It's pretty consistent with most sittings. Mm-hmm. There are also differences sometimes if mostly the right nostril or mostly the left nostril probably has to do with, you know, where the mucous membranes are, are doing their work. Um, but consistently, the in-breath is more discernible than the out-breath. Mm-hmm. Do you know why? I re- no. I Find re- out. Find out. I mean, I, what questions can I ask myself in order to... No questions. No questions. It's now, it's now on the agenda, your agenda. Just really pay attention. You know, just pay attention. It, don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. No, that, that will just undermine the whole practice. No. Just, just pay attention. But even if it's not that you have to have a reason, just that you know it, now, as you begin to see it in the watching, you may find that it will start to even itself out. Um, again, I don't know. You'll have to find out. Again, it could be... Uh, okay. I'd rather not speculate. I'd rather you find it out for yourself. Well, it rang a bell when you said that maybe the discernment was not done um, as carefully as it should have been. Mm-hmm. I had a, had a lot of trouble, and I don't feel entirely confident mm-hmm. that I know just where I should wait. Okay. Okay. Again. Okay. Again. Let's not get fanatical because the breath, every breath, is slightly different than the breath before. It's by and large where the sensations seem to be touching, and so oh, and we just station our attention there, and we're just there, and then the saw goes over that area. But the problem is the outbreath. I don't, I don't know whether I, I'm not. Maybe the terminal, term, the appropriate term is that it's very fine. I don't. I don't know. Yes. But it, it just seems as if sometimes, no matter where my attention is, it's right where I, where I felt the out-breath before, mm-hmm. and it's right where I felt the in-breath, mm-hmm. but I just don't feel anything. It's okay. Okay. Just, in other words, that's, the, the, that's why the, in this small area, it's uh, sometimes called guarding, guarding the, the breath. So that means it's like a sentinel. You're on duty there. Okay. So you're there, whether you feel the breath or you don't feel the breath. You don't have to worry. Relax. It's soft. It's open. It's not tense. You know, like, well, <laughs> it's not that way. I mean, you, you wouldn't last half an hour with this. So it's, uh, it's very, very open, and you're just learning how to just settle, settle in that place. And the breath comes in, the breath goes out, and sometimes it's a very long pause. Fine. You're right there. 
And as I say, you may reach a point where it feels like you're absolutely certain you're not breathing at all. Okay, some of this is just to prepare us a little bit, and if it happens, so uh, you'll, be pre- you'll know about it and not make it into more of a problem than it needs to be. You know, you probably remember that you're not going to die. And okay. um, Anything else on anyone's mind? I'm interested in, uh, in an ongoing way about how people are using the breath in daily life, whether it's helpful, whether it's not helpful, in what ways, yes. It's okay. Are you feeling the sensations touch the nose? Yes. Keep it simple. Sorry, I'm not going to answer it. You know, there's... The, 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 but then there's just something else happening, and it may be just another... Something else. Yeah. Yeah. But it might be awareness that I'm misinterpreting or overinterpreting. Okay. One of the uh, um, most important things in... Uh, samadhi practice is not overload the mind with too many things to do. You don't, I don't know if it's a, a special kind of awareness or, yeah. The main thing is, are you feeling that point that something knows it? Stick with that. Stick with. Now, as, I understand when it's like that. But later on, when we look at the mind itself, there are going to be a variety of mind states, including what you're talking about. And they themselves become the object of attention. They become the meditation. The breath recedes in the background and is used as an anchor to help pay attention to all kinds of mind states, some of which are quite subtle and exotic. Well, it's not an interference unless you make it so. Yeah just what it is. Anyone have any progress reports on using the breath in daily life? Does that mean you're not using it or are you... What does it mean? I really need words. I'm kind of dopey. I have no psychic abilities. And if you don't tell me, I just don't know. Truthfully, do you forget to use the breath during the day? I mean, most of the, all the time, most of the time. Yeah. Big clumps sometimes. There's a problem of when you remember it. I know you don't make a problem, but 
Yeah. When that happens, include that big chunk of time along with the full history, recorded history of mankind. <laughs> and just start right over again in the present moment. Yeah. It just, you know, it's just part of the dinosaurs, Christopher Columbus, it's all, just let him join everything that's over with. And just start in the beginning of three years, three seconds. Oh, just start again. Yeah. So we're be constantly beginning over and over again. I find it great to use to address in my daily life if my mental state is already kind of okay, like I'm driving, I'm using but if I really have a lot of worries on my mind and I don't have a chance to sit right then, which is like one of the, I mean, I can't sit usually because I'm like working now. Um, then sometimes when I, I try to be with the breath, it feels like a little bit of a struggle, like I'm in this situation and I have these worries and I'm being back with the breath and I have these I mean, sometimes, mm -hmm. I don't know if I should be struggling right now, just no. be with my worries, I, I don't know. No, okay. <laughs> it depends on what you're doing. If you're driving a car, I would say first and foremost, drive the car. Solve your worries some other time. Investigate some other time, and if it's a question of the breath, forget it. Just steering wheel, left, right, green light, right, light, you know, passing this lane. That's your primary, that's your correct action, overwhelmingly. And a lot of life is like that. Or there's intelligence built into the situation. If we're open to it, we see what kind of attentiveness is really called for. And when we don't, then acknowledge that. Oh, I don't really know what correct action here would be. Now, the breath is designed, is meant to be an aid to stay awake in what you're doing. It's not that the breath is an end in itself in, in this way. So that whatever, talking to someone, uh, waiting for an interview, you know, whatever you can tell me about your day, the whole point of Anapanasati when we bring the breath, we try to unite the breath with what we're doing, is, is to help us develop mindfulness, is help us stay awake in the moment. That's why we're using it. It's not to become involuted, you know, just sort of being preoccupied with the breath while the world passes us by and uh, becoming just terrible at the actions and the way we talk and listen to people. It's, we're not becoming obsessed with the breath. We're learning how to use the breath in a sensitive way to help us live more fully. Now, if it doesn't help, it's okay. The main thing is the mindfulness. Anapanasati has the same goal as Satipatthana. It's about that. Establishing mindfulness, awareness, so that it becomes a way of living. So the awareness is us. It's us. Now, there are times, I know, where it seems like, should I be with the breath? Should I examine where I'm suffering? Or should I be with the task? That's what I hear. What you... Yeah, yeah. Um, you'll have to work that out artfully, just to use the most simple-minded example, which we've used a lot. You're, you're irritated because there's a blockage on waiting on the line in the supermarket. Okay. What you can do is look directly at your irritability. Right? That's one thing you can do. And if you can, just pure attentiveness, just feeling the shoulders tense and the anger and annoyance or whatever. You could also, in this situation, you could turn to the breath because it's relatively uncomplicated. You're just waiting. 
and when the person finishes, then you have to talk to the cashier and manage money and so forth. But so you could just go to the breath, or you could work with both. That is, you uh, focus in on the irritability, but the breath is used, and this is one of the main ways I'm suggesting it, as a, a kind of a, a very delicate anchor, helping you to sustain your attentiveness to, to, the, to the moment. And you'll have to work it out. I'm not suggesting that uh, everyone has to do Anapanasati all the time for the rest of their life, but you're not going to find out about its value unless you really try to use it. And the rest is up to you, that's all I can say. If the more you use it, the more available it is to you. The more available it is, obviously, then you can begin to bring it in in ways in which are being suggested here. But how would you avoid that judgment so you don't end up thinking, I'm annoyed at waiting in line, and I'm annoyed at myself because I can't do the press? Well, you just see them and let them go like anything else. You, we, we're not at war with the judgments. Yeah. We hear the judging mind and we see it arise and pass away, which is central to our practice, and we come back to what's in the moment. It's very simple medicine. It's, you, know, it's, you may want something more special than that, but there isn't, you know, this is as good as anything. It's just seeing, hearing the judging mind. Oh, you've been asleep for three hours. Oh, you know, okay. Hearing that, fine, let it go, and then come back to, to now. There's only now. Always, isn't there? There's only now. And what we're learning is to, is to really understand that there's only now. Really listen, if you like, be with your breath and try to hear what's being said. This is by the 13th Dalai Lama, the Dalai Lama before the present one, sometimes called the Great 13th. If you ever see a photograph of him, he has an incredible face. The Bodhisattva, that's us. We're little Buddhas in training. The Bodhisattva is like the mightiest of warriors, but his enemies are not common foes of flesh and bone. His fight is with the inner delusions, the afflictions of self-cherishing and ego-grasping, those most terrible of demons that catch living beings in the snare of confusion and cause them forever to wander in pain, frustration, and sorrow. His mission is to harm ignorance and delusion, never living beings. These he looks upon with kindness, patience, and empathy, cherishing them like a mother cherishes her only child. He is the real hero, calmly facing any hardship in order to bring peace, happiness, and liberation to the world. Okay, now, uh, this is a beautiful statement of the Kalesas, and I'm sh- does anyone do- not know what I mean by the Kalesas when I use that term? Greed, hatred, and delusion. And here you might, it has to do with, of course, helping other people who are ensnared in them, but I would say for right now, take the main meaning to be, it's us. Or it's the, what we're, we're saving ourselves from these tendencies that we have, which... Uh, were brought out by Joanne in just that simple statement. Um, I think it might be helpful for you to put the samadhi practice because sometimes it can seem, until you start tasting the fruit, uh, like too mechanical or even cold an exercise, some kind of concentration exercise which has almost a militaristic drill 
uh, attitude towards, which it really isn't. Uh, the samadhi practice has, as we hear very, very often, value in that when the mind becomes steady and calm, we can then use it to investigate, right? So that it's in the service of being able to do vipassana. The crown jewel of our practice is, is insight. But the samadhi practice uh, has something to contribute enormously, in fact, to working with these kalesas, to helping the warrior do the, their job, do his or her job, uh, in and of itself. It's independent. It's not necessarily its value comes at a later time when you apply it, its strength, the strength that it gives to our Vipassana work. Uh, think of it in this way, just to be really brief, and then you, know, you can reflect and see it for yourself. If a person has never been alerted to the possibility of turning to, let's say, the breath. It could be other things, but we're using the breath. Then, typically what happens is, um, when any of these surface, these energies surface, greed or hatred or delusion, in any of their forms, we're uh, enslaved to them. We're pushed around by them. We follow their commands. We do exactly as we're told, thinking that we're doing, we're doing it. We're really enslaved to our mind in that sense, or this aspect of mind, which is quite prominent. It's not like it happens once or twice a day. It's going on a lot. You look carefully, you'll see it in a gross way and in a subtle way. Okay. To, as you develop the breath as a place of uh, refuge, in a sense, that is, it becomes a stronger place to settle into, and that comes about only through training. It's not going to happen through any, any magic. Every time, just on one in-breath or one out-breath, every time you, you decide, instead of rolling in your stuff, you know, you make a conscious choice that, oh no, I'm going to go back to an in-breath, and you actually are able to aim your attention at an in-breath and fully experience it, that is conditioning that happening more often in the future. You're conditioning the increased possibility of awareness in the future. So that even just one in-breath or one out-breath, what you're beginning to do is establish a, 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 a substantial place of strength, a place to come to in, in, inwardly. You know, you could use images of, of a house or sometimes it's used as a fortress, but it's, a, it's an inner strength. And now you have an option that you might not have had before where you can short-circuit some of these kalesas. So they come up. Whatever they are, you're down on yourself, or you're depressed, or you're angry, or, you know, all of them. Now, I'm not talking about wisdom. We'll get to that later on. But even with samadhi, right then and there, if you can learn to remember that you have the option of turning to the breath, that is, these other preoccupations are competing with us. And by and large, they're saying, come along, follow me, get involved. If you're going to get absorbed, get, in, get absorbed in this. Get absorbed in uh, bitterness. Get absorbed in loneliness. Get absorbed in jealousy. Come on. And we do it time and time again. And what the samadhi practice is saying is that you have an option that you didn't have before. The stronger the concentration becomes, the more that option is viable and real. Because you can become very, very steady. That means you turn away from whatever is demanding your attention and you drop into a place of peace. 
Now, once you do that, that means that in that moment, you have released yourself from unnecessarily suffering. Had you not been able to do that, you would have gotten all caught up in it, and you'd, you know, we have our other ways of, of escaping through movies, through the food, or whatever it is, telephones. Or, there are many things to get absorbed in. This one goes a lot deeper and is more reliable once you develop it. Moreover, as you come into the, uh, let's say, the healing energy that samadhi provides us with, peace is what it is, calm. Uh, while you're residing there, and as you develop, you can stay in samadhi for very long periods of time. One of the things that's happening, in addition to conditioning that, in other words, you're strengthening that possibility for yourself in the future, is that you're deconditioning, you're making uh, selfing weaker. That is, this tendency to grasp onto things and in some destructive way make them into I and mine, the kilesas, because you've not fed energy into it. Instead, you've gone to the breath and come to a place of repose. So in the process of doing that, you're deconditioning some of these tendencies to suffer. So they get a little weaker because we're not exercising them. It's like they become flabby. Now, we're not uprooting them. Wisdom is what can do that. But the samadhi practice can make an invaluable contribution to weakening uh, the, some of the kilesas. Moreover, uh, when you come out, when you've been soothed and rested in a state of calm, and here, of course, now we get into Vipassana, where much more is said about this, and I'm, probably you've all read it, then the freshness of mind that you have, uh, the underlying sense of well-being and joy, permits you to investigate states that are unpleasant. The other day I had a really big laugh, and I don't know if you'll see it the way I did, it just struck me as really funny, that a lot of what the samadhi practice is about is to getting, getting to taste, uh, to become uh, happy enough to be able to investigate our unhappiness. You know, whereas if you don't have that, it's sort of like a troubled mind trying to investigate itself, and it, it's, you know, there's something you can do, but it doesn't go awfully deep. And so, if we have an independent source of joy, which samadhi practice leads to, that gives us a, a place to refresh ourselves, a place to heal, and to come back and face whatever is happening in a way that makes it um, workable. So, whether you know it or not, even any of these perhaps seemingly abstract exercises, not abstract, but I don't know what to call it, you might think they're removed from the real juices of life. They're not. You know, if you want to do anything worthwhile, you have to prepare for it. If you want to climb a mountain, you need to go into training. Uh, if you want to really free yourself, you have to develop a mind that can really work, that really is steady enough to investigate all of these, you know, what, what the 13th Dalai Lama is talking about. And, if you like, a warrior image is not a, is not a wrong one. The, the kilesas are destructive enough. Just look at the planet, for goodness sake. Look at it from an inner level. The problem not being nuclear weapons or even ecology. That's an expression of a derangement of mind that led to that, of a, a unbridled greed, coupled with incredible delusion, so that we're unable, still, to be able to see the consequences of what we're doing.
It was just a very short-run feeling of grasping at things for some happiness that seems to elude us. So the, the state of the planet comes out of the collective ignorance of individual minds that are able, in some cases, to work together as a country and pool the ignorance. It becomes colossal. And so what we, each one of us is doing in our own way, it is a warrior-like quality, but the, it's, not as it, it's not that you get violent towards your kalesas, because that itself is a kalesa. And the breath becomes an extraordinary aid in this contention between darkness and sorrow, and on the other hand, wisdom, brightness, love. Because the breath is a very neutral object, very simple, always available, and it just can become an extraordinary ally in enabling us to proceed in this direction. You have to see what, what's at stake, and so that some of what's happening is when you see, let's say, uh, typically, just to, to take off on what you said, Joanne, sometimes some things will come up in life. You know, you feel that you're about to explode or do something harmful to a person or uh, enter into a course of action that's bound to have uh, repercussions of a, of a destructive nature for someone else and for you. And perhaps you're, it's so strong you can't investigate. Sometimes just being able to turn to the breath for a few moments enables you, it's a kind of a way of restraining or preventing some course of action that can be quite devastating. So please use it. I mean, that's what it's for. We're developing this inner strength so that we can use it and use it in those times when you need it. Now, we're learning to do it all the time. In those moments when some of these energies, destructive energies, rage very, very strongly, uh, this is not a time to forget about the breath at all. This is a time to really see how deep our practice has gone. Can we use it right here and now? And if you can't, that's all right. It's just showing you. And then we pick up and we begin again. And every time we're attentive, whether to the breath or something else, we're conditioning the possibilities of moving in a constructive direction rather than one that seems to be harmful. Why don't we finish up with a sitting? One very important precaution once we allow a concept like the Kalesas to become alive inside us, to take it seriously begin to observe the work of these energies in us is that sometimes people will use this to make for more suffering like the seeing of greed suddenly the person sees oh I'm a greedy person on top of whatever problems the person might have thought they had. Now, <clears throat> they've become a greedy person, a bad person. The teaching is not saying that you're a greedy person, except maybe if it's ordinary speech, conventional speech, or that you're a bad person. It's saying that you're a suffering person. 
So it's not that we use these energies to con- as another occasion to condemn ourselves, but rather we begin to see how influential they are, how much they dominate our actions. And then we observe carefully and see if the outcomes are what we want. If they are, great, full speed ahead. But if you begin to see that grasping or greed in any of its many subtle expressions or aggression, hatred, aversion, any of its more subtle expressions or delusion or unawareness, its various forms, we begin to see that it's very costly to live under the control of these energies. And you also see that we're not helpless, helpless or hopeless. And that our practice is a way of diminishing and eventually abandoning these tendencies. An arhat or a Buddha is a person whose heart is totally purified from kilesas. It's been washed away, cleansed. Each one of us has the same heart. It's no different. Our parents and having us gave us a Buddha nature as well to begin with, whether they knew it or not. Please, in the following week, mainly do the work of the fourth contemplation, the samadhi work, but bring the interests, the content of the first three into your practice as well, in whatever way you feel you would like to. A good way, as we did tonight, is the beginning of a sitting to use a more broad and open attentiveness and then to move into a more precise kind of noticing. But sometimes you may have discovered that just sitting with the whole body, being aware of the breathing is very calming and helpful for you, then by all means use some sittings that way. But try to have at least one sitting a day where some of that sitting is devoted to samadhi in the way in which it was suggested here tonight. 